Today's Happy Healthy You podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash happy healthy you. Over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. asked me for an extra hour before we recorded this podcast, and I'm so glad that he did because I was able to find a little bit more information about the subject we're talking about today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. I'm Connie Bowman, and today we're talking about addiction and intervention, and I found this awesome article by Johan Hari, who's the author of Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs, and the article's in the Huffington Post. I'll post it on the Facebook page. It's so compelling. So in the article, I'll just read parts of it. He says, what if almost everything we've been told about addiction is wrong? What if there's a very different story waiting for us? If only we were ready to hear it. It is now 100 years since drugs were first banned. And all through this long century of waging war on drugs, we've been told a story about addiction by our teachers and by our governments. So here's how our current ideas about addiction were formed. There were these rat experiments. You may remember it. A rat was put in a cage alone with two water bottles. One is just water. The other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. But in the 1970s, a professor of psychology in Vancouver, Bruce Alexander, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So Professor Alexander built Rat Park. It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls and the best rat food and tunnels to scamper down and plenty of friends, everything a rat about town could want. In Rat Park, all the rats obviously tried both water bottles because they didn't know what was in them. But what happened next was startling. The rats with the good lives didn't like the drugged water. They mostly shunned it, consuming less than a quarter of the drugs the isolated rats used. None of them died. While all the rats who were alone and unhappy became heavy users, none of the rats who had a happy environment did. At about the same time as these experiments, the Vietnam War was happening. According to Time magazine, using heroin was as common as chewing gum among U.S. soldiers, and there is solid evidence to back this up. Some 20% of U.S. soldiers had become addicted to heroin there, according to a study published in the Archives of General Psychiatry. People back home were concerned. They believed a huge number of addicts were about to head home when the war ended. But in fact, some 95% of the addicted soldiers, according to the same study, simply stopped. Very few had rehab. They shifted from a terrifying cage back to a pleasant one, and they didn't want the drugs anymore. Professor Alexander argues this discovery is a profound challenge, both to the right-wing view that addiction is a moral failing caused by too much hedonistic partying, and the liberal view that addiction is a disease taking place in a chemically hijacked brain. In fact, he argues, addiction is an adaptation. It's not you. It's your cage. 
After the first phase of Rat Park, Professor Alexander then took his test further. He reran the early experiments where the rats were left alone and became compulsive users of the drug. He let them use for 57 days. If anything can hook you, it's that. Then he took them out of isolation and he placed them in Rat Park. He wanted to know if you fall into that state of addiction, is your brain hijacked? Do the drugs take you over? What happened is again striking. The rats seemed to have a few twitches of withdrawal, but they soon stopped their heavy use and they went back to having a normal life. The good cage saved them. Here's an example of an experiment that's happening all around us. If you get run over today and you break your hip, you will probably be given the medical name for heroin, diamorphine. In the hospital around you, there will be plenty of people also given heroin for long periods for pain relief. The heroin you will get from the doctor will have a much higher purity and potency than the heroin being used by street addicts who have to buy from criminals who adulterate it. So if the old theory of addiction is right, it's the drugs that cause it. They make your body need them. Then it's obvious what should happen. Loads of people should leave the hospital and try to score smack on the streets to meet their habit. Loving an addict is really hard, says this author. When he looked at the addicts he loved, it was always tempting to follow the tough love advice, he says, doled out by those reality shows like Intervention. Just tell the addict to shape up or cut them off. Their message is that an addict who won't stop should be shunned. It's the logic of the drug war imported into our private lives. But in fact, he learned, that will only deepen their addiction and we may lose them altogether. Today I'm here to talk about intervention and recovery because they work, according to my guest, David Brown. David is a professional interventionist. He is a licensed addiction counselor, mentor, coach, public speaker, and educator. He was educated in England. He has an awesome British accent, and he's traveled the world extensively during his successful career in international sales. He's a proud man in recovery with his sobriety date back on August 1st, 1982. Together with his wife Lucy, they head Avenues to Recovery Inc, which is an an international practice actually that provides substance abuse treatment, outpatient treatment, intervention, case management, and recovery mental services. He's done over 240 interventions and maybe more than that now because he's he's actually out of town working on one now. He stresses that the most successful interventions he's done were the ones in which concern was conveyed without shame, without ultimatums and without being hurtful. He's a regular contributor to so many blogs and publications such as Addiction Professional Magazine, Intervene magazine and the Illinois Institute for Addiction Recovery so many others welcome david thank you so much for coming on the podcast good morning how are you i'm good yeah i said you have this awesome british accent so we're going to make you famous in the voiceover world maybe you'll have a whole new career <laughs> so i'm glad you started off with uh, johan hari because he is controversial he's also english and uh, he's a feature writer for I think the Guardian newspaper and when I first read the uh portions that you actually read this morning mm-hmm. I kind of thought about it and thought about it thought about it because I would like to say that it really didn't make sense but the more I've thought about it the more it makes sense because here's what we know uh in 1935 uh there was absolutely zero idea about treating addiction at all so 
if you were an addict, you were probably institutionalized or locked up and certainly uh, taken away from your family and you died in, you died in squalor. And then, uh, and then something happened and it was called Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. And I think that Harry is talking about a connection between one addict to another addict. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous actually intuitively has been providing since the, the mid-30s and still provides that. Uh, for example, I was, uh, I was in a, uh, I, I'm in Green Bay at the moment and went to an AA meeting at lunchtime yesterday afternoon at the community center and there were 17 people at 1.30 in the afternoon connected in commonality because uh, if they realize if they get together to talk about what their disease used to be like, there is a good chance that on a daily basis they can figure out how to use this. Yeah, the 12-step programs are amazing, and their success rate is better than anything else, right? We've we've. Yep. As long as, you know, as long as people follow direction, if, if, if you do what you're supposed to do, then you're going to get well. The yeah. problem is that the human condition is that my ego tells me I've gotten a little bit better. And so I shouldn't necessarily listen to all of that stuff because I wasn't that bad in the first place. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, let's start here. Let's start with what is intervention, because you say intervention is is not a lot of things. So let's start with what intervention is in your uh, experience and what it is not. Maybe you can go into that. So I think that I think that we've come a long way. The, the original kind of concept was a concept that was put together by Mr. Johnson up in Minnesota and the Johnson method of intervention was almost like a like a smash and grab it was like a surprise attack and, and uh, they hustled you with very little warning into a vehicle and they took you to treatment and so what you had there was somebody in treatment plotting what he was going to do to you when he got back and if you th thought I drank, drank before oh. just wait until I get out I'll show you what drinking looks like oh, so that was not a well conceived plan even though it was the universal method. So the methodology that Lucy and I have come to uh, employ the most is a, um, a methodology where by working with the family up front and by dealing with the family, that we invite the family member who is dealing with addiction into the meeting uh, and we allow respect and we allow dignity to be intact there is no shaming there is no blaming there's a lot of serious conversation but we stay away from personal attacks and what happens is that we watch a family system decide to do different things so the the, the uh, identified patient will decide to go to treatment but at the same time mother who is the master enabler decides she's going to go to Al-Anon and dad is going to sort of think about his drinking and the brother realizes that he needs therapy. So there is all kinds of change and growth going across the family system and when that happens, uh, great things happen and, that, and that's kind of the work that I, I, I want to do and I'm passionate about doing. The other thing I'd say to you is that when it reaches the point that my phone rings and somebody says this and this is going on 
I would say to you the only unsuccessful intervention at that point is an intervention that doesn't actually take place. Mm. Because in many cases, uh, everyone in the family is sick and everyone in the family has been trying to figure this out. And uh, the first phone call is the one that sort of gives the family an opportunity to look at addiction in a diff- uh, from a different light. Mm. And, and what, in your experience, have you seen happen when, when the whole family is involved in this, as opposed to uh, just reaching out to the, the addict? Well, um, let me give you an example. Early on, uh, several years ago, I dealt with a young gal that we'd known since she was 14. And she started off with a little marijuana problem and she always had it under control and she thought she was doing what she's supposed to do. But she was getting into more and more trouble. And her mother, and we knew her mother very well and we kept telling mom, eventually, you know, this thing is going to spiral out of control. And you're going to ask yourself why you didn't take care of yourself. But she wanted to fix it. And she wanted to kind of snoopervise this addiction. Snoopervise? Did you say snoopervise? I did. (laughs) That's a great word. I love it. Go ahead. So um, fast forward to uh, five years ago. Mom calls and she says, Jordan is unconscious on the kitchen floor. What should I do? I said, do you see any signs of anything? She said, I, I find track marks. I said, she's probably overdosed. She's probably flatlining. So mom's a registered nurse. Mother revives her because of shame, doesn't want to call the ambulance because, oh, my God, my daughter relapsed mm-hmm. and gets her stable. Um, and then about a week later, we go over to talk to the gal. And by this time, she's so frightened that she's going to die. We asked her what she wanted to do, and she said, I want to go to treatment. So I took her to treatment, uh, and Lucy stayed with the family, and they dealt with the family. So today, mother is a card-carrying member of Al-Anon. Dad goes to Al-Anon. Her sister, who was 14 at the time, also goes to Al-Anon. And this family is absolutely functional. The magic of this story is that the gal went to treatment in California, stayed in California, and actually works as the house manager for a sober living in the treatment center that she originally went to five years ago. Beautiful. And everybody's getting well. Uh, And when I talk to mom, and I'll probably talk to her before Christmas, she'll call me and she'll say, it's really kind of difficult that my daughter still lives in California but at least when she's in California, I know she's going to live today. Yeah, yeah. So if someone isn't familiar with Al-Anon, which I don't know who isn't, but uh, Al-Anon is the uh, sort of the counterpart to the 12-step meetings, AA or, yeah. or yeah. Um, Naranon. Or Al-Anon, or so many... is, Al-Anon is a, an, a, an adaptation of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is a 12-step program using some of the basic tenets and concepts. And uh, I'm here to tell you that from my experience that if I have a drinking male, a drinking husband, who has been able to manipulate his wife forever, that there is change 
as soon as she begins to go to Al-Anon and sort of figure out from her side of the world what it means to detach from the addiction. Mm-hmm. Not to detach from her husband, sure. but to detach from the addict's behavior. So in other words, if he passes out on the floor, in the kitchen, rather than try to get him to bed, leave him there so that when he wakes up in the morning, he realizes what happens because he has to understand what his cons- consequences are going to be. Mm. And again, it goes back to the, su- the success, goes back to that human connection, because you go to these meetings and work the 12 steps yourself as a family member. And you also hear the stories of other people who have successfully navigated this chaotic world of addiction. So that's cool. That is, so, so, so when you're the when you're the active codependent and you're sitting in that world thinking that nobody ever has been had has had to live like this and nobody understands this guy and I don't know what happened to him uh, and you go to these meetings and you suddenly realize that everybody has a story and everybody wants to get connected and if you listen long enough you're going to hear a story just like yours and then you will relate to that person and she might be further down the road and so um, you begin to talk to that woman and realize you know there is a solution and the solution is to detach from the addiction with love and give my loved one the dignity of his own path Mm. it's interesting when you back away from them that suddenly they are left with this kind of vacuum and have to ask themselves questions about what am I going to do now it's interesting I have three men uh, who are coming to see me right now who all Uh, came to see me as a result of a conversation that they had with their wives after Thanksgiving because they got they got awkward and nasty Uh, and uh, you know the the wives just put their foot down and say listen now you know I put up with this for a long time I'm no longer willing to put up with this would you please go and see David and each one of them has exactly the same story and the thing that has changed now is that the men the husbands realize their wives have had it and they're going to do something different it is absolutely this human connection yeah. you know we are hard, we as Brene Brown says we are hardwired for connection we are I love Brene Brown and you've actually worked with her and done uh, some training with her how cool is that that's great yeah that is incredibly cool so uh, we talked about intervention and you not only work with the addict but you work with the family you also say that intervention is not coercive it's not shame-based as Brene Brown talks about in her books it is not angry or hurtful it's not an ambush as you said like the TV shows would like to uh, teach us Um, It is a planned interaction between an individual and a group whose sole purpose is to modify the individual's dependence on a harmful substance or practice. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So there's no shaming. There's no belittling. There is all this negativity that we're so, uh, we think, is the way to handle this addiction is not the way that has been found to be successful, would you say? Well, Well, you know, let me give you... My last week's example, an intervention that occurred on Friday morning, last Friday morning in Kansas City. And uh, the, the wife was incredibly enmeshed in her husband's behavior. Didn't necessarily see that this intervention was necessary. 
but was convinced by her grown children that things were out of control and something needed to happen. And in the family the work that we did prior to the intervention, uh, the children were able to sort of voice how the addiction had impacted each one of them. And they were over it. They were ready to detach. But because because the wife had become the sole spokesman for the husband and the husband wasn't in the room. All I heard for three hours one night when we were doing a preparation meeting was all of the things that he wouldn't be willing to do. And I said to her, I said, how do you know that? You are not him, but that's based on experience. I said, he's never been in this position before. So uh, she called me on Thursday. The intervention was on Friday. She said, do you think I should invite him? I said, I think you should invite him. I think you should invite him to this family meeting and have him come. So Friday morning, we, we gathered in his house. He came and joined us with his cup of coffee. Um, he was obviously a little defensive and worried about what was going to happen. Uh, but then he listened to his family tell him how much they loved him and how he had changed and how they were worried about being around him because there were no good times anymore. And and the really poignant moment was this. He said, well, I can't go today because I'm not gonna be, I don't want to be away at Christmas. And his youngest daughter, who was 24 years of age, said, it doesn't really matter, Dad. You've been away at Christmas all my life. Mm. How about go away and give us an opportunity to have a Christmas when you get home? What a real gift. And he went to, yeah. and he went to treatment. Mm. And there, nobody got angry. Nobody got angry. And it was, it was, it was remarkable. And that is, that is the tone that I strive for every time. I believe that the addict is disconnected, is frightened, doesn't want to live like that. So he hears about a family meeting or she hears about a family meeting and the ego demands that they attend because they want to know what is being said about them. So they connect with the family and all of the things that he anticipated being said they, they anticipate anger, they anticipate people being annoyed with them, they anticipate a dragging up of every bad story that was ever told. And inside about 15 minutes, they realize they came to the wrong meeting if that's what they think they were going to get. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very cool, very cool. Well, you know, you're, uh, you're sitting outside in this hotel lobby, and I can hear the holiday music in the background. Let's talk about the holidays and how the holidays can be especially difficult for family members of those uh, with addictions and people in recovery. So you've, you've mentioned to me that this is a very crucial time for a lot of people. You want to talk about that? I, w- I would say that, uh, you know, people in recovery, it's a frightening time. Because for many, for many, uh, for many recovering people, uh, their addiction began in the family home. Because we're looking at a, uh, you know, we're looking at a, at a disease, we're looking at an illness with a with a a genetic predisposition. So we only have to look at our family tree to figure out where our addiction came from. So, you know, 
because I got sober doesn't mean that my family is understanding of what I need. So one of the things that I say to people in early recovery, if they're going to be around family, is to make sure that when the family begins to get crazy in the way that they've always gotten crazy, that you give yourself a way out, that you give yourself an exit plan. You know, and you say to mom, I'll, I'll come over for a couple of hours, but I don't think I can be there all day. And she'll say, well, what am I going to do? Well, I'm probably going to go to a 12-step meeting. I might go and serve uh, alcoholics down at the club because they're providing a food, providing food. But do everything that I have to to keep myself safe and be around other people in recovery. And when I first got sober, that's what I did. Um, Christmas was awful because I was cut off from the world. I was cut off from my family. Uh, and I wasn't at that point that I could handle that yet. Mm, yeah, I want to talk about your story in a little bit. But maybe since we're talking about the holidays and you mentioned family, what can family members do to support their loved ones during this time? Somewhere in that family unit, there is somebody with an absolutely ironclad sense of empathy and understanding. You know, and it might be mom, it might be grandma, it could be dad. Uh, but I encourage my people when they're going home to be absolutely candid about how difficult it's going to be and to not rely on willpower to get yourself through this event because these are stressful events i mean this is a time of this is a time of relapse because people overestimate or underestimate what they can do so for example you know we're working in an office environment it's our first it's it's the first holiday season where we're clean and sober and we feel duty bound to go to that office party where there is rampant alcohol use and suddenly, out of nowhere, we have that glass in our hand and we wonder, well, I, I didn't intend to do that. Well, the point is that we are hardwired to do that. And if we put ourselves in that situation, there's a great likelihood that that's going to happen unless we've sort of thought about it ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So families can help in supporting, not being over vigilant and not, not sort of directing, but just... Uh, you know, providing conversation and support. So my mother, my mother for the 27 years that she knew me in sobriety was like my little cheerleader in England and she just understood what I needed. And it wasn't advice and it wasn't counsel, it was just love, it was just connection. Mm. And, you know, I'm glad you're sober. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've done, I'm glad you're doing this. I'm glad it's working, you know, so that... That became an important adjunct to my life. You, and and you, look at all of the, you look at all of these people that have supported you, and you no longer want to let them down. You've, you've let them down enough. You want to do something different. Yeah, yeah. Do you recall the most meaningful thing your mom said? Was it something like that? I'm glad you're sober. Uh, it's time for some levity. But um, in mm -hmm. 1985, I got sober in 1982. And I needed to go and have this face-to-face -face conversation that I hadn't had with my mother for five years. Uh, because when we, five years earlier, when we 
left each other, we left in anger, and she said, you know, you can talk to me when you're clean and sober, but leave me alone until then. So she intuitively detached from me, and I couldn't believe she'd done that. So in 1985, I was in London. I visited her to make the amend, to make things right, and she was, uh, I got to her house at 7.30 in the morning, and she was on her front doorstep, jumping up and down, very, very excited to see her little boy, who at this point was uh, 41 years of age. And uh, I wanted to talk about everything that happened, and I wanted to talk about everything that had happened. And she kept interrupting, and she wanted to talk about this, and she wanted to make breakfast, and she wanted to know about this, and she wanted to know about this other thing. So finally, I sat down at the kitchen table as she was making breakfast, and I said, Mom... I have to talk to you. And she said, I know. I said, Mom, I've been sober for three years. And she said, so has the blankety-blank cat. What do you want for breakfast? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so for, for, the next, for the next 27 years until she died, uh, she was my silent presence across the ocean. Yeah. Um, when, when I was sober 25 years, I went over and gave her my my 25-year coin, which uh, became an absolute wonderful keepsake for her because she understood the work that had gone into that. And my 27-year coin went into her coffin, So, Aww. and I miss her. So yeah. when I'm in England, I always go and, go and visit her grave, and we have a chat, and we continue the conversation that we've had all of this time, and it's the same conversation. And it's thanks for supporting me in the way that you always have. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And the and family, family is crucial to the success of sobriety, it seems. So, so I think that message will resonate with a lot of people. So thank you for sharing that. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you were uber qualified to do this? Maybe a little bit about your story. I mean, obviously, you've been sober for so long. You have created this business with your wife to help so many other people going through this journey. Um, talk about how your sobriety happened and how how it's changed your life. I mean, I, I see it as more of a spiritual awakening in the people that I've loved. I had a um, an uncle who shared with me his stories of... Um, sobriety and I went to his 30 year meeting. He invited me and I was so honored to go to his meeting and I listened to the stories over and over of people who whom he had helped through his years uh, working the 12 step programs and I was just so inspired and he was always just an inspirational guy for me even though a lot of people in the family thought of him uh, terminally as just a drunk and it annoyed me so much because I knew so much more that he was this spiritual guy, and he really had a spiritual awakening through his work uh, with the 12 Steps, 12 Step program. So can you talk about that a little bit? So it's interesting, working with someone last night, I, he was talking about his journey with spirituality and how difficult it has been, and he asked me the question. He said, what about you? And I said, well, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was raised as a Roman Catholic, and... Uh, my life didn't warrant sort of thinking about my Roman Catholicism because I knew what I was doing was <clears throat> kind of against every tenet of those things that I knew to be right and good. So um, 
my spiritual life was probably one of the first things to go because you can't live in the way that I was living and be spiritual. It just doesn't work. So fast forward to 1982 and I'm living in this park in Chicago and I've been there for several months. And I'm, I mean, you talk about the... Uh, the experiment that jo Johan Hari talks about, I was absolutely disconnected from life. Mm -hmm. My only connection was panhandling on the corner and saying hello to the guy in the liquor store when I went to get the next bottle of vodka. That, that was it. That was my connection. So, for whatever reason, probably around the 28th of July of 1982, I woke up on this park bench and asked myself a serious question, which was, how did I get here? You, you know, you're educated, you have a college degree, you had a good family, you had good jobs, you had a life. How did you get here? And, and even if you can understand how you got here, how can you get, how can you leave here? How can you get out of this? And, you know, I couldn't answer that question. I had no idea. And even in that, the questioning had nothing to do with drugs and alcohol because that was an area of my life that I never, ever looked at. So um, I called the only person that I had a telephone number for. I went to a payphone and called Anne, who had been a friend of mine. And uh, she uh, basically, in a couple of seconds, understood what was going on. And she sent a friend of hers... Larry to talk to me and I don't remember much about the conversation but what I do remember is that he said in all probability you've crossed over the line from recreation into addiction and you'll never be able to you'll never be able to use recreationally again which was well I'll show him hmm. his question was would you like to go to a 12-step meeting with me and my thought was no I, I need to go and do a controlled drinking experiment which failed absolutely terribly. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and then, so he'd mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous. Then on Saturday, I was arrested for stealing a bottle of vodka by the largest Irish Chicago cop that I'd ever met. <laughs> you remember Officer, that? <laughs> yeah, Officer Mike, who uh, sort of thought of me as being so pathetic, he too suggested to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And then on Sunday, the 1st of August, I walked walk through the front door. And I realized that that whole episode had been divinely inspired because I was doing things that were not my nature. You know, so uh, I realized that, that uh, Anne had been an angel and Larry had been an angel and the cop had been an angel. So much so that 10 days later at, at the AA meeting, who walks into the AA meeting but the policeman, you know, because he's in recovery. So, it, again, it's this human connection thing. Mm. Uh, and then shortly after that, I'd been sober about three months, and, and Larry, the guy that came to talk to me, died of a heroin overdose. <gasps> oh, and it was, it was like, mm. how can that be? How, how can this angel have died? Because I'm... I'm getting well, and I couldn't have gotten well without his help. And I, I suddenly realized that this whole recovery thing sometimes is perverse, and these things happen, and addiction kills people. But if you're if you're a survivor, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep you've got got to keep passing it on. You've got to keep 
you got to keep telling the message you got to keep telling the story you got to keep connecting to people mm. and that's what i do yeah yeah wow what a story and officer mike was in that meeting that's that's incredible so did you feel like my uncle jim used to say that he felt like once he got on this path of sobriety and he started working the steps and he, he actually got to the, I think the last step is reaching out and helping others, right? Is Yeah. Yes. So um, he, when he started really reaching out and being a sponsor <clears throat> himself and his life just became magical and things would happen like that. like you, And you start to see things in that way um, as more of a divinely, you're living more of a divinely inspired life. Have you found that? There is absolutely no doubt. I mean, the, the, the situations I find myself in, the, the uh, so I, I, I spent four hours yesterday afternoon with a guy that I met up in Green Bay in August of last year. And in August of last year, he was so addicted to crack cocaine that he was like a caged animal. Mm. And we actually met kind of in the seat where I'm sitting right now, which is kind of ir ironic. And one of those God's little coincidences. Yeah. Right? Synchronicities, so I love them. After, after we met, uh, he didn't want to have anything to do with recovery. Uh, so his family put me on a retainer and I became their consultant. And so a short time after this, he had a psychological break and finished up in a mental hospital for three months. And uh, so he has now been out for three months. And I spent three or four hours with him yesterday. And he is doing so incredibly well. And he couldn't apologize enough for being such a butthead. And I said, <laughs> don't apologize for the fact that you're an addict. You know, it, it, it isn't as though you were a bad person. You were sick. And I said, and I get to see you today. And I, I get to see you in recovery. And that's a gift. And it reminds me about why we do the things that we do, you know. Yeah, yeah. But he was, he's no longer just a gentle, gentle, loving soul. And uh, we visited with his treatment team here in Green Bay. And we, we sort of looked at it very, very carefully and realize that there's the possibility that he's picking up a, an addiction to gambling. So we're going to nip that in the bud because it never stops. There's always something else. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, it occurs to me that everyone should actually work the 12 steps because some of the most real and uh, spiritually mature people that I've met have been through the program. So, yeah. What a great... Well, here's what I know. Here's what I know. I, I, haven't, I haven't ingested a substance since 1982. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm spiritually fit, I know it. I can feel it. Uh, and that spiritual fitness is dependent on my attending meetings by being around people in recovery and by doing a review of what step are you working. And uh, because invariably when I become irritable and discontented or Lucy said what's going on with you and I want to say nothing I'm fine I realize that I'm spiritually disconnected again and the quickest finest way for me to get reconnected in a hurry is 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 by a review of where I am as far as the 12 steps are concerned 
And so, for example, this exercise here today with you is 12-step works because it's, it's, passing on, it's passing on the gift, it's passing on the message, you know. Cool. I'm so, so excited. Uh, That's great. I never thought about no, it that you, way. Yeah. No, I mean, you, 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 so you're going you're gonna to be, you're going you're gonna to find something that resonated with you and you're going to pass that on and, and that person is going wow that's pretty cool this some idea of a podcast to me is just it's just a super thing anyway <laughs> yeah i know i i kind of had the inspiration to do it a few years ago and i i don't even know where it's going but i'm enjoying it so we're yeah, hopefully sharing some information that can help some people. So, David, I want to read these myths that you gave me. There are five myths that you talk about, uh, common yeah. myths. And if I can just read them really quick and maybe get your comments, and then after that we'll give all your information so if someone wants to get in touch with you. Okay, so I'm going to read the myths. There are five myths you say that people should be aware of. These are not true. So as I read them, I'll read them all and then you can just comment. So number one, addicts and alcoholics need to reach rock bottom before they can accept help. Myth number two, addiction is a willpower problem. People can stop if they put their mind to it. Myth number three, people don't need treatment. They can stop using if they are really motivated. Myth number four, treatment doesn't work. And myth number five, people must want treatment in order for it to be effective. And I think that's a really ingrained one in our culture. Can you just comment on some of those? Well, um, so in looking at this thing, um, it, it is a common refrain when dealing with families because of misinformation that somebody in the family system will say, well, they just need to reach rock bottom. And when I hear that, I kind of... Uh, kind of it makes me very uncomfortable because if you look at the nature of addiction on the streets of the United States today mm. if you look at the pandemic of opiate addiction and the return of heroin addiction and the overdose history that is ever ever increasing it's kind of ludicrous to say they reach their bottom because invariably the bottom for that addict is death. Mm, so if I'm going to look at that addict and can talk to him early enough by raising the bottom, by talking to them early about what the possibilities are with regard to recovery, maybe we can save a life and maybe we can help that person bounce back into life and away from that bottom. So I get, I get really nervous about this concept of bottom. I think it's an old, old wife's tail and it doesn't it doesn't fit anymore mm, good thank you for that thank you i think that's that's really important with so many young people dying uh every day from these uh heroin the heroin problem and the opiate problem as you say yeah we need to we need to really re-examine that so how about um people must want treatment to really be effective in your experience has that been the case uh, I think I think the, I think the statement is naive. Uh, you know, I, I think I think lots of people want treatment, but they kind of circle that conversation uh, because if you know, so if if the decision today or if the argument that I have in my head today is, well, should I go to treatment today or should I get high? Getting high wins every time. Mm. 
Mm. So we we have to do something else in that conversation. And uh, yeah, people can use if they put their mind to it, but they need a lot of support in getting there. And we've got to get that mind into a place where that mind is detoxed and that mind is safe and that mind is eating well and that mind is meditating and that mind is exercising and we're no longer running and gunning like we were like uh, like our family members do you know they disappear they they go on a jag they go on the ground we don't know where they are they they become like covert operators it's like what's going on now you know so again this connection factor, I think, is so important because by connecting to that guy who thinks he needs treatment, I can help him turn that thinking he needs it into actualizing and going to treatment. And you say you have a 90% success rate. I, I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. I go into the room where the intervention is uh, taking place and I look around the room and I say to myself, somebody's going to treatment today. And then I also say to myself, hey, God, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth over the next two or three hours. Just guide me in the right direction. And then I know I can't lose. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, let's talk about how someone can get in touch with you and your beautiful wife, Lucy, if they need to use you for an intervention or just to uh, take advantage of your expertise in this in this uh, world of addiction. No, no. How can they find no, you? Lucy and I have a company which is based in Olathe, Kansas, which is spelled O-L-A-T-H-E, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City. And the business is called Avenues to Recovery. And we have a website. You can find us at www.avenuestorecovery.net. Or else um, you can call me. 913-486-8119 913-486-8119 and I'm on call 24-7-365 and if you, want, if you want help I'll get you help Awesome, and you travel all over the world I you, do Yeah, you're traveling now to help people I, I am I, I've, done, I've done interventions in, uh, in several in Europe this year and brought those people back to the United States to treatment and uh, there's never a dull moment Well, thank you so much, David. You are such a blessing, and I'm just going to trust that this podcast gets to the right ears and and people are touched by your words and and healed by them in in whatever way they are needing it today. And I, I just want to leave the podcast with some last words. Do you have anything that you would like to impart to listeners uh, this day during the holidays? I would say to families that. Um that if if there is a family member dealing with addiction it's time to sort of take the uh take the lid off it it's time to sort of look at it it's the time to talk about it addiction breeds in secrecy and it it breeds with family members not knowing how to talk about it not wanting to talk about it because that conversation invariably is always been ugly so we have to we have to break through the secrets. We have to get the family on the same page. We have to be speaking the same language, and we have to love our we have to love our addict. We got to make that addict understand that we love him love him or her to death, and that we will do anything 
to help them get back on their feet again. And one of the reasons that people uh, get professional help from myself and others like me across the country is it gives them it gives them language that they didn't know they had. Mm, beautiful. And it's a, a beautiful synchronicity that the first Noel was playing in the background. So may this podcast be a, a birth of, of healing and, and sobriety for those listening who might need it. Thank you so much, David. Happy holidays you. to you. to happy a journey of hope healing and waking up is a small but powerful book about healing from one of life's greatest tragedies the loss of a child it's about love and sadness and being human the nine lessons in back to happy are intended to be food for a broken but awakening soul healing from grief and loss is possible finding joy again is possible back to happy in paperback Kindle and audiobook at Amazon.com. For more information, visit backtohappybook.com.